0: You have a Bible handy, open up to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and I think we're beginning at verse 27 tonight. Actually, I think we're beginning sooner than that. I know we're beginning sooner than that with uh, verse 22 i going to read all the way through one, but I don't think we'll go that far tonight. Uh, this is a little bit strange for me because it's a repeat passage. I think it might be the first time I've come to a passage for the second time since I've been here at Wiser Lake. So uh, if you were here in 2020, Lent 2020, and this seems familiar, don't, don't spoil anything for those who <laughs> might be new to you. Uh, let's begin, though. Mark 20, uh, Mark eight twenty two through one. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they looked like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Excuse me. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word. Be to God. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us your word, and in it we see Christ and his mission declared so clearly. And yet, even now, 2,000 years later, it can be somewhat shocking to recognize that your mission involved what looked like failure and loss, and indeed involved death. It's a hard lesson for us to remember that as disciples, uh, at times, victory only comes through death and then resurrection. May your word challenge us and encourage us this evening. Amen. Well, we're crossing into a new section of the book of Mark. Up to this point, uh, chapter one through the first half of chapter eight has largely focused on Jesus's ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, more or less, there's kind of some side trips off to other regions, but more or less around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and But now from the middle of chapter eight until the end of chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples are in a section where they're journeying roughly a hundred miles from Caesarea Philippi in the north down to Jerusalem. And then uh, Mark 11 through 16 focuses on the last week of Jesus's life. So the book, it's picking up speed. Uh, Eight chapters focus on three years then we have three chapters on how long would it take to go 100 miles. If you're a good hiker, maybe five days, but probably t- 10, 20 days that they're on this trip. Uh, so in three chapters. And then we have eight chapters. No, that's not right, Math Five, six chapters focused on the last week of Jesus' life. So uh, I'm saying picking up speed, but actually it's the opposite of that. In literary terms, um, it technically would be called uh, narrative retardation, that it slows down the pace Of narration. The the amount of words it takes gets closer to the amount of time it takes for it actually to happen, if that makes sense. So um, uh, it's slowing down and and when an author does that, he's cueing in or keying you into the this is important. Uh, Sorry, I should stick to my notes. It's warm and we do want to end at some point. (laughs) Uh, uh, So focusing on this section in the way it begins with the healing of a blind man, and then if you stick your finger in and flip over a page. Or two, at the end of chapter 10, do you see it ends with the healing of a second blind man, blind Bartimaeus, sitting on the road from Jericho up to Jerusalem? Okay, so they're at the final section of the journey. Remember, there's this funny thing about the healing of the blind man at the beginning here at Bethsaida, that Jesus seemingly is playing optometrist. I remember he spits and he puts his hands on him and then he says, well, what, you know, how's your vision now? What do you see? You know, is this good? Is this better? And what does the man say? Does anyone remember? (laughs) Yeah, trees. That's right. You should remember. I just read it. Uh, It's not from last week, but uh, yeah. Yeah, they look like trees walking around. Okay. I see something. Of course, you got to remember in in Israel, trees aren't like our huge uh, cedar trees, but, you know, some little stunted trees that uh, looks like trees walking around. So the disciples at the beginning of this, they see something. Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. They see, but in a sense, it's like seeing people look like trees, that it's fuzzy. Their vision isn't clear. So Jesus is trying to clarify their vision of what he's on about. Okay, uh, just one more comment about this larger section before we get into our passage. Uh, it, It begins and ends with the healing of a blind man, and then in between, or two blind men, Uh, In between, it's structured around three predictions of Jesus' death. Okay, so three times here in chapter 8, and then again in chapter 9, verse 30, and then again in chapter 10, verse 32. There's three times that Jesus warns his disciples that when they get to Jerusalem, he's going to die. The section then, is it's punctuated with these ongoing comments like we see in verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples. While they were on the way, he told them. uh, And we've kind of been seeing the same metaphor in the book of Proverbs, that our our course in life, a way is a metaphor for our course of life. And on the way, Jesus is teaching them the right way to live. So Jesus knows what he has to do when they get to Jerusalem. That's clear from these predictions, but he has to prepare his disciples for it. He has to help them understand why he is going to die and how they're supposed to live. Uh, and I, I read all the way through one, even though we're not going to go that far tonight, uh, because I want you to see each of these three predictions of his death. Even if you just page over to um, the next couple pages, he, uh pages, uh, he warns them that he's going to, he's going to die. And then immediately do you see in chapter nine, uh, verse 30, uh, 31, the son of man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and die. And then right after that, they're debating who's the greatest. And he teaches them the first shall be last. It's about discipleship. Likewise, in, in chapter 10, he tells them again, and that's when there's this weird uh, James and John asking to, uh, uh, to be at his right and left hand. Uh, and again, then he teaches them saying, this is what it's like to be a disciple. So, uh, recognizing that Christ came or Jesus is the Christ, what that means for him to be the Christ involves dying, which is hard for the disciples to get their heads around, but it also means something for how to follow Christ, uh, which is equally hard for us to get our heads around. Any just comments on the section that we're in? We're kind of at a turning point here. Uh, you see that there's another key or, or indicator that we're at a turning point, verse 32. And he said this plainly. Okay, up till now, he's been t- teaching the crowds in parables, but now it's like, okay, it's getting near the end. If they don't get it now in these last couple weeks on the journey, they're not going to be prepared for what happens in Jerusalem. So he starts to teach them plainly. Okay, I don't have much more to say about the healing of the blind man, except that it's an image of the disciples, that it's a a picture of where they're at in their own walk. Jesus and his disciples, then they're walking on from uh, the villages of Caesarea Philippi up in the north. And he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? That's one of the key questions in the gospel of Mark. Who is this? Remember, after he calms the storm in Mark 4, the disciples ask, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? In chapter 6, remember, Herod had this sort of discussion with his courtiers about who is this Jesus. Uh, And it's interesting that the disciples say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. And that's the same options that uh, was going around in Herod's time, or in Herod's discussion in chapter 6. Do you remember which option Herod settled on? Yeah, it's John Risen, uh, John the Baptist. Uh, And it's funny because he seems quite sure in that chapter, at least the way I read it in chapter 6. He he says, okay, those are the options. Well, it's this one. It's John the Baptist. Jesus begins with this low-stake question. Who do people say that I am? What's the conversation? What are the opinions? Okay, it's easy to say, well, some people say this and others say that. There's no commitment yet, right? It's just sort of saying, here's the options. Here's what people are saying. But then in verse 29, he puts the question to the disciples. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Kids, if I can challenge all of you for a moment, there comes a point when you're confronted by this basic question. Who do you say that I am? Not who do your parents say Jesus is, not what does your church think about Jesus? Not what do scholars say? But who do you say that Jesus is? It's a challenge that comes, and you've got to make up your mind. Him softness, and then we shake our heads at him for his foolishness. Uh, and in the same passage, and so Peter really is a picture of all of us disciples that we can be so bold one minute and so foolhardy the next. Peter simply and boldly answers, "You are the Christ." Uh, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. You are the Messiah, which means anointed one. I wonder, kids, uh, can you think of anyone who's anointed in the Bible? Young adults, sorry. (laughs) Aaron's anointed. And what is Aaron's job? He's a priest, that's right. So Aaron and the priests are anointed. Can anyone else think of people who are anointed? The kings? Yeah, David's anointed, that's right. Uh, There's a couple times when prophets are anointed, okay? Anointing is uh, literally, well, I should ask, do you guys know what anointing means? Oh, yeah, Lulu, you know? Pouring oil on people. Is that like oil from the car? It's like olive oil. Yeah, that kind of oil. Olive oils, I, I, well, here's... It's hot and I'm a little tired, but I used to work when, when I was in high school in a restaurant and one of the chefs was bald. He shaved his head with a Bic razor and he always used to get oil, olive oil on his hands and rub it on his head. And he'd say, olive oil is good for your skin. And so <laughs> I don't know if you should take a cook's opinion on that, but uh, uh, so it's pouring oil on the head. We actually saw when we were in Scotland at some of the museums, these horns that they used to drink ale out of. But the same kind of a thing, a horn off like a big cow horn um, uh, What's that down from your house, Albert? They have the longhorn cattle out there. That could hold a lot of oil in the, uh, 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 you know, so it's a horn, and then maybe at one end it's stopped up with some kind of silver thing, and then a plug at the pointy end that you can pull off, and you can get oil out of it like you'd get oil out of a uh, glass jar for olive oil. Anyways, dumping oil on the head. And it's a sign, a bit like we had Lord's Supper this morning or baptism, a sign marking someone. Uh, In the case of anointing in the Old Testament, it's marking someone, for a specific task that they've been chosen by God to fulfill. So you guys came up with a good list. Prophets, priests, and kings are anointed in this way. And so when Christ, Jesus comes as the Messiah, as the Christ, uh, Christ isn't his last name, you know, Jesus Christ, that sort of thing, John Smith. No, it's a title. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Anointed One. He's coming to fulfill these different roles. He's coming as prophet, priest, and predominantly as king who would deliver his people. Um, So you might remember uh, in Luke 2, to go sideways, uh, Simeon's this old man in the temple. And we're told that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, God's Messiah, God's anointed one, before he had seen God's promised king. In Jesus' day, this was a popular hope. There would be, once again, an anointed one, a Christ, a Messiah, uh, another David, a promised king, a new prophet who would come and deliver his people. So when Jesus asks the disciples who they think he is, Peter answers, you are the Christ. That is to say, you are the promised king. It's a good answer. It's a good answer. Jesus accepts this title. He says, yes, I am the Messiah. Well, he doesn't actually say that, but he accepts the title. He doesn't say, no, you've got it wrong, but he does strictly charge them not to tell or to tell no one about him that is to say don't tell people i'm the christ why do you think he might be doing that yeah that's right yeah that it uh it's a loaded term in that day so everyone was looking for the christ the promised king They had expectations about this is what it's going to look like. And he wants to explain to them, yes, I am God's anointed, but here's how my mission is going to be fulfilled. And it's different than what a lot of people are expecting. Yeah, Dan. I think a similar idea, if I had to guess on verse 26 or or take a hazard, a sort of proposal, um, obviously, sooner or later, this guy has to go to the village and people are going to say, you're not blind anymore. And so word's going to get out. But if Jesus is passing through that region and he's on a mission, he's headed towards Jerusalem, it would make sense that if this man goes into the village, huge crowds come out, he's going to be delayed on his journey. Um, he is trying to get to Jerusalem for the Passover, specifically. Um, at the last supper, he says, I've longed to eat this meal with you. So he has a plan to get to Jerusalem by the Passover. So so that would be my guess is there. It's a sort of, um, I don't want a big crowd around us right now because we need to keep moving. Um, that would be, but, but yeah, it is connected in a sense as well. Um, when someone has power. I suppose it's a bit like when someone has money, everybody has a uh, something, you know, some great idea of what you could do with it. I don't know if you've ever seen these stupid things about people who won the uh, lottery, and then people come out of the woodwork, you know, second cousins they've never talked to about, you know, I've got this great thing that we could do with this money, you should come do this, that sort of thing that if you have money, uh, likewise, if you have power, everybody has an agenda. So Jesus accepts this title, he's the coming king, but he warns them not to tell others because he first has to teach his disciples about this coming king's mission. Yes, I'm the king, says Jesus, but he immediately, uh, I I think Mark uses that, his favorite word there. Uh, uh, Oh no, not immediately, 31, he began to teach them. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That is to say, the king must go to the cross. This is an interesting hodgepodge of uh, people that will be against him, that will reject him. So far in Mark's gospel, we've heard about the scribes, Uh, the teachers of the law, and they've been opposed to Jesus once or twice or come to check him out. Uh, But this is the first we've heard about the elders and the chief priests. Uh, The elders would be leaders uh, like we have elders in our own church. And so each individual synagogue in various villages would have elders that led that synagogue. But there were also a set of elders for the temple who form what is known as the Sanhedrin, uh, a sort of council uh, over the temple and obviously that sort of has preeminence over these various synagogues since it's in the temple the chief priest, of course there's only one chief priest at a time and uh, there's that bit where is it paul doesn't know that someone's at the chief priest in a given year in the book of acts is it paul uh nate's telling me it is uh that seems to imply that it's it changes annually or is it jesus that it's paul yeah um, that seems to imply that it changes fairly regularly, and you might not know who the chief priest is at that time. Uh, and so to say the chief priests, it's saying maybe the former, you know, last year's chief priest, maybe next year's chief priest uh, uh, together. So it's, 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 it's then he's saying the teachers of the law and the Jerusalem establishment, the leaders in the temple, uh, those who are the, the leading religious figures of the day, are going to reject him and he's going to be killed and after three days rise again. Notice here he teaches them that the Son of Man must suffer. He doesn't He doesn't say the Christ, but he says the Son of Man. Uh, the Son of Man, it's, he's used it a couple times in the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to notice in this section over the next couple chapters that he uses this title fairly frequently. Um, there's a number of ways to read it. At its most literal, the son of man more or less means a mere man, simply a man. Uh, And he's saying, I'm a human like you're a human. And yet this same language of the son of man is also used in Daniel chapter 7. The one uh, after these beastly empires rise and are defeated, then one like a son of man comes with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. In Daniel, the point going on there is you have all these empires that are represented by four different beasts. And so we could say in a sense they're beastly empires, or we might say they're inhumane, unhumane, inhumane, one of those words, inhumane, uh, that they're not, hu- uh, that they're inhumane. And in a sense, uh, even just reflecting again on, on, on Roe versus Wade and some of these things, we live in a country that is in some ways very inhumane. Uh, the way that we treat other people as a system can be inhumane. Um, uh, the empire is built on the backs of slavery. It's an inhumane way to, uh, run a kingdom. And certainly Rome was a kingdom like that. It was built on the back of slaves, uh, So there's going to be this series of beastly empires inhumane, but now there's going to be an empire that comes, a kingdom that comes, and it's not going to be represented by a beast, but by one like a son of man, by one who's in a human form. So it's a human or humane form of government. That's the promise of Daniel 7. Well, Daniel 7, it goes far beyond what Peter has in mind. One like a son of man coming on clouds of heaven to the ancient of days. And that his dominion and glory and kingdom should be over all peoples, nations, and languages. That's a lot more comprehensive than what Peter has in mind. So on the one hand, he's saying, yeah, I'm the king, but I'm a greater king than you imagine. But notice the second thing Jesus says. This son of man must be rejected, killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus doesn't say the odds are I'm going to wind up getting caught and killed when we go to Jerusalem. It's not even a prophecy saying, I will be bound when we get to Jerusalem, captured, rejected, killed. No, he says that he must, that he must be rejected, die, and rise again. This is what is necessary as part of my mission. This is voluntary. This is his mission, the very reason he came. Mark doesn't really get into the weeds of why that is. He doesn't explain things like substitutionary atonement. I I referenced Paul this morning that uh, that Jesus reveals the righteousness of, maybe I deleted it out, I can't remember, but Romans uh, chapter 3, I don't think I did talk about it this morning, uh, that Christ reveals the righteousness of God, that God is both just and the justifier, uh, That that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be made righteous. That sort of stuff Mark doesn't unpack at any point in his gospel, and I think in part because Paul has already written his letters, they're already in circulation. And so Mark's job is not to unpack the theology. Well, I mean, it is very theologically, obviously. But if you see what I'm saying, he's not writing a treatise on how does the cross work. He's telling us the story of Jesus's life. And yet it is clear that Jesus's very mission goes to the cross. There's no other way. He must do it. Uh, And in part, it's because his mission is more than just driving out the Romans. Eventually, his kingdom will overturn the Roman Empire. Uh, or the Roman Empire will get turned upside down. Remember in Acts, uh, they say uh, this man has turned the whole world upside down when they're accusing Paul. Uh, Jesus is preaching. It goes out, and it does turn the whole world upside down. But that's not what he's doing in the first instance. Uh, We got Spartacus from the library, and if it cools down enough to be in the house and watch it, we're going to watch it sometime this summer. Uh, But Jesus is not another Spartacus coming to overthrow the Romans by force. His mission is much bigger than that. It's to defeat death itself, To free us from our bondage to sin and darkness. Indeed, to defeat the Satan who will once again challenge him on the cross, at the cross. He must be rejected, die, and rise again. And so he is the king who comes to set his people free. But paradoxically, he can only do so by losing. Only by losing does Jesus win his greatest victory. Well, this is too much for Peter. So Peter takes Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him. So far in Mark's gospel, Jesus has rebuked demons. And now Peter comes to rebuke Jesus. He's treating him like a demon in that sense. Why does Peter have such an extreme reaction? I think Austin was already pointing this out. From the nursery, Peter learned that Israel's hope and consolation was a king who would win a decisive victory drive out all the enemies of Israel and establish a new kingdom like David, his ancestor. Okay, that's what they were looking for. And so to say I'm coming and I must die right away, it's a bit like uh, the football teams in the locker room at halftime and the team captains or coach, you know, Pete Carroll's giving a pep talk and he says, we're going to go out and we're going to let them get five touchdowns in a row, and then we'll think about the fourth quarter. That's the sort of strategy Jesus seems to be laying out here. It seems absurd. That's not how you win. It's unthinkable for Peter. And so Jesus' response to Peter may seem sharp, but if it cuts, it's because it's like a doctor's scalpel. It says, get behind me, Satan. Satan we've seen earlier in the temptation in the wilderness so far in Mark's gospel. And the temptation there was to use, for Jesus to use his power in a self-serving way rather than to live in a self-sacrificial way. And again, Peter is voicing those same sorts of objections. Surely you don't need to die. Surely you can use your power to win a sort of forced victory. Jesus unmasked the source of Peter's thought that it's satanic. And that should be frightening to all of us as we end. After all, Peter's attitude is that if Jesus has the power and the authority, then of course he should use it for his own good, for his own benefit. Jesus should never, thinks Peter, take the loss so that others can win. But Jesus says that sort of an attitude about power and authority is ultimately satanic. And so, friends, it challenges me, and I suspect it challenges you as well. How often do we have the same attitude? How often do we think only to use our power and authority for our own good rather than the good of others? It's hard to think about losing so that someone else can win. I know just even in in family life, how hard is it to let someone else have the last word when they're wrong? You got to let them know they're wrong, right? It's hard to let someone else have the last word. And yet to keep quiet for the greater good? Uh, or, or just to let the fight end, that sort of thing. And that's a trivial example, but how often do we grasp after power thinking we can use it for our own good? Uh, I think I probably already used Gladreal as an example. In, in when we, The Temptation in the Wilderness, did we use Gladriel? Yeah, okay. Well, there, it illustrates itself. Uh, just read Tolkien, it illustrates all these points so well that Galadriel, you know, she can use the ring of power and she can do so much good, but she says she'll be more terrible and more fair than the dark Lord uh, last, just the one last thing to point out. And then if you have any comments, notice that Jesus response to Peter doesn't try to show the reasonableness of his plan. Okay. There is a place, a sort of chastened place for apologetics, but Jesus doesn't sit Peter down and say, well, what can we agree on? And now let me reason with you from here. And I'll show you that my plan really is the best plan. No, he's pretty, it's, it's more or less the equivalent of smacking him. He's just saying, no, get behind me, Satan, you're wrong. It's not justifiable to human reason, for this plan is divine wisdom, not human reason. Instead, Jesus says there's a basic contrast in how you view power based on if you set your minds on the things of God or on the things of man. He says you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, if you set your mind on the things of God, then we can begin to understand why the king must go to the cross. And it also helps us to start to understand what the life of discipleship looks like in response, because we're going to see as disciples, we're called to do the same thing in next week's passage, to lay down our own lives for the sake of others. And it will be cooler next week. I see the weather forecast is mid-60s, so back to perfect Washington weather. But uh, Any other last comments or thoughts on on this passage here? There doesn't have to be, but if there are. Yeah, John. Peter, sometimes we like the idea of Jesus or God or sanctification, but we don't always like the method by which God does it. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's uh, a great point, that we don't always like the, the method that Jesus, or God or Jesus uses for sanctification. That's uh, looking ahead to next Sunday morning. Proverbs 3 talks about um, uh, uh, God chastens those he loves or disciplines those he loves like a father. And we think, well, if God loves us, then things should be smooth sailing, easy going. We shouldn't ever need disciplined. And yet Proverbs says the opposite, actually, uh, uh, that God disciplines those he loves, uses hard times to shape us, form us. Difficult circumstances. Yeah, that's true. Great. Well, let's turn then to our time of prayer together.